Journalists, whether trade or consumer, write about the good and the bad in financial services. They develop a unique helicopter view of the market, companies, propositions, campaigns and individual industry personalities. My guest has written for both consumer titles, notably the Sunday Telegraph and the Independent on Sunday, and trade publications such as Money Marketing Magazine. Hear Annie talk about her view of financial services and advice gleaned from many years' experience writing about all aspects of the industry. Listen to her fascinating and funny stories about working for Money Marketing Magazine. Do you remember the great column, A Sure Thing, with Annie plus Esther Shaw and Sam Shaw? That's all right here on episode 25 of the Marketing, Protection and Finance podcast. Hi, it's Roger Edwards here, and you're listening to the podcast for providers and advisors looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of protection and finance. For each episode, you can find the show notes and links to things we talked about at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MPAF. So let's get on with the show and prepare to be inspired. Welcome to the Empath Podcast. This is episode 25. Thanks for sticking with me so far and making the podcast successful and so enjoyable to produce. This is the last episode of 2014. I'll be back in 2015 with great interviews from David Ferguson of Nucleus Financial and Esther Dijkstra from Scottish Widows. If you enjoy the Empath Podcast and you fancy winning a bottle of champagne, please leave me a review on iTunes. It would really help push the show up the rankings and make it visible to more people. It only takes two minutes. Go to rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MPAF and follow the links on the screen for reviews. If you could do that, I'd be grateful. I'll pick a random name from anyone leaving a review before the 1st of January 2015 and send the winner a bottle of Verve Clicquot Champagne worth £30. Enjoy the holiday season, see you next year, and let's get into that great fun interview with Annie Shaw. So let's get started. I'm delighted to introduce you to my guest today, and she is Annie Shaw. Annie is a writer and commentator, freelance journalist and broadcaster. Over the years, she's worked for the Sunday Telegraph, the Independent on Sunday, the Daily Express, and in the trade area, money marketing. Annie is a director of CashQuestions.com, a unique service run by a panel of renowned personal finance journalists. It's a sort of questions and answers service for consumers. And Annie is also the financial agony aunt for Saga magazine and website. So, Annie, welcome to the Empath Podcast. Hello there. How are you today? Yeah, I'm fine. A bit, of a, a bit blustery out there, but I'm surviving. I'm in rural Cheshire at the moment and surviving, surviving the, the weather, which has been a, a bit bad in the last couple of days. So, Annie, we've known each other for quite a while. In fact, a couple of years ago, we did uh, some web TV together for, for Bright Prey. And that was all about protection. That was talking about trying to encourage consumers to interact about protection. But before we get to those sorts of topics, I'd like to really explore 
where you came from with your career and how you started as a journalist and how your career progressed through the consumer press and, and finally ended up in the trade because you were telling me just before we um, hit record there that actually you came into journalism the other way that most people come in. Most people start on the trades and move up to consumer. You, you sort of did it the other way, didn't you? I did. Uh, it's it, a bit of a funny story. I always wanted to be a journalist. Um, I'm, I'm from, uh, from Cheshire originally, which is where I've come back to having been in London and the South East for, for most of my working life. My neighbour was a, a guardian, was, was an editor of The Guardian when I, when, when I was a child. And I, I remember just thinking, I really want to work, I really want to be a journalist. And I, and I went round to, to see him and he said to me, he advised me to go to university. He said, you know, you can always be a journalist later, any, you know, but, but go to university. So I did that. And then I came out of, uh, out of university and, and from then I moved on to other trades. I went to, um, it was Financial Weekly. That's how I first got interested in, in, in financial matters. Uh, that was a weekly thing. It was advertised at the time. It was a line at the time was that it was the weekend paper that the FT doesn't publish. Of course, the FT now probably has for many years, has published its own weekend section, but it was that. So it was a mixture of the financial commentary, um, news of, of the weekend news and, uh, sort of leisure and lifestyle stuff. And from then, I moved on freelancing um, for The Times. I then took a job on The Times. And then eventually, I was in the middle of all that whopping, um, terrible, you know, the strikes and the lockouts and, and all that union busting thing uh, back in the 80s, a, a very, very traumatic time. But I, by that time, I kind of settled into production journalism. So I wasn't really writing anything except the headlines and Stanford and, and Pollack quotes and all that sort of stuff and captions to pictures. I, I did all the editing, so I think got myself to be a fairly competent writer doing that, because obviously you're improving other people's work. And came to, um, I was on the Sunday Telegraph as, as, a, as a production journalist there, and started sort of, I say, dabbling in, in, in finance. It, it occurred to me that, first, I, I was really interested in personal work, because I thought, you know, it's about me. Every story I saw in the news was, at that time, about me. It, 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 it affected me. And in fact, Finance does affect everybody. You can try and ignore it, but everybody needs to save. Everybody needs a pension. Everybody needs insurance. And so, it, and I just thought I want to be involved in something about me. So I started to write articles and submit them to the uh, personal finance section of the uh, Sunday Telegraph. I was never employed as a personal finance writer on the Telegraph. I was purely a, a, a contributor there, although I was on the staff in another role. And then um, I went off and became a freelance. I wasn't very good at it to start with. I didn't have enough contact. And I did it, well, I don't know, about 10, 12 months, something like that. And I thought, I need to get a job. So um, I got a job on a compliance website. And you believe it was me working in compliance. Unbelievable. But I have to say, I just loved all the stuff on money laundering. All the, all the anti-money laundering stuff was my uh, favourite, um, my, my favourite topic, but Lots and lots of stuff. So I did actually sort of get my get to know my way around the, uh, the what was then the FSA uh, quite well on you know all their bits of guidance and ICOPS and NCOPS and perimeter guidance all that kind of stuff. So it's very interesting. And then I went freelance again, and that's where I am. That's where I am now. And how did you make the transition from consumer press, Sunday Telegraph, Independent, etc., into the trades? So how did you come to work for well, marketing? Well, I what. There I was, you know, sort of looking for work. And I thought, well, I can, you know, I, I do know, uh, you know, some uh, advisors. I do know people in the business who had picked up some 
my consumer stories and I was looking to widen my my reach and um, and came to money marketing. Now, I realise that there are many of the uh, most eminent personal finance uh, writers, editors have come up through the trade. They've been on from financial uh, financial advisor or um, on on money marketing or any of the other you know the pensions trade. I sort of went backwards. <laughs> yeah. I, having been a, a national newspaper writer with many, many bylines in, in national papers, but all, by now I was also writing for things like The, the Independent on Sunday, and I've been the Observer, The Guardian, all sorts of national papers. I then went back to writing for, okay, backwards. I mean, I don't think backwards at all, but it's just a different progression from, from the way everybody else goes, into writing for Money Marketing, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I uh, it was fantastic. I worked first for for uh, John Lappin and latterly for um, for Paul McMillan and also lots of interaction uh, with uh, Phil Scott who was then there and uh, Gregor Watt who were just sterling chaps to be commissioned by and I, I loved it. So uh, you know no complaints there at all of it. I was interested in what you said earlier about when you were working on the consumer press, how you found that finance and all the stories you wrote about finance were effectively stories about you. Do you think that you brought something to the trades having worked on the consumer side first? What I'm trying to say there, I suppose, is you've you got a feel for what the consumer's issues were with the financial services industry, and no doubt you wrote, wrote some articles which were quite scathing of the, of the financial services industry and some which were quite positive. Did you find that you could translate that consumer angle back into the trades and perhaps put a spin on it that a journalist who'd started in the trades and hadn't experienced the consumer side wouldn't have been able to do? So yes and no. The, the biggest um, influence, the, the biggest difference would be is, is probably age. It's uh-huh. probably because it, a lot of it, obviously in, in trade press, there are a lot of very young people, a lot of uh, trainees, people who are interns, they move to trainees, they move up, and they become very experienced in their uh, in, in their field. Of course they do. But what they haven't done probably is, you know, for instance, had a mortgage for 20 years or something like that, and then right. had to remortgage or something like that. So I think what I was bringing uh, to it was, was I wasn't really wanting to bring a consumer angle because obviously one is writing for the trades and you're trying to tell, uh, you know, inform those people who are reading, your, your readers, who, um, you know, ha- how the news affects their business. But the insight, I suppose, is interesting about what is important to you because I think that when you perhaps haven't had the experience, like you're a very young person, you haven't been through what it's like to be turned down for an insurance claim for critical illness or something like that, yeah. or or, or uh, what it's like to you know try to uh, insure a car if you've got a you know you've got, you've got some failing eyesight or something like that because it's you know as you have to mother to do it or something like that. But those sort of things are, are I think that's it was important to bring that sort of uh, that that sort of thing into into what I was doing to a, a different type of view on it. So it, it was consumer, but it was also I think. Just being being old and not being one of the one, one of the younger members of staff. That's not to say that there are not extremely experienced and older people. I mean, you know, the great John at Walford, you know, at money management, many many years. So I'm sure that they were absolutely not not short of one single bit of, of insight and experience. But I think for, as, as, just when you're doing the general reporting job, I think it kind of brought one bit extra. And of course, the thing that you're remembered for by everybody in the industry uh, probably is a column which appeared in Money Marketing a few years back, and it was called the Sure Thing. And you actually, but I just died behind my sofa. (laughs) (laughs) And you you, you teamed up with Esther Shaw. 
yourself, Annie Shaw, and Sam Shaw, and you created a really quite unique column within Money Marketing. Tell us a little bit about how that started, Annie. Well, uh, thank you, Kim North, who uh, invented it, who invented us. She spotted us at uh, what was Unbiased Awards. It was then the IFAP, you know, IFA Promotion Awards. We were there out with our party shoes on as usual. And she spotted us and said, you know, you three shores, you're at all the parties. She said, you're like the 3 a.m. girl. You know, you should, you should write a column about it. And so we had just the three of us looked at each other and said, you know what, we should. And so we, we presented ourselves to John Lappin, who was the editor of Money Marketing at the time, before Sam Shaw was then working on the staff of Money Marketing. I think Esther was then, I can't know Esther was, I think she might have been independent. Yeah, she was at the independent at the time. And anyway, there was a lot of shilling and chilling and toing and froing and all this, and it was, you know, tuck, tuck, we can't have this. It's kind of, it's going to be, you know, trivializing the industry. It was all resolved, and after six months, we got to write it. Now, I was, in fact, on holiday. I was uh, in Cornwall, again, in a field, as I can spend all of my time, because I'm in a field at the moment. Um, <laughs> uh, well, the house in the field, actually. Not actually I think I was actually in the field when, when Esther rang me on my mobile on a very dodgy signal and said, Oh, John Lappin wants a column for next week. We start next week. And I think, I haven't been anywhere. I'm actually in a field, you know, in, in rural Cornwall. I can't remember what I wrote about in the first column now, but I know it was a pretty terrifying experience. And, but we did it and it was, and it went on and it ran for, I think, about a year. And so, so Esther and Sam and yourself were writing about trips to Wimbledon and trips to parties, money marketing awards, health insurance awards, that sort of thing. So it was great fun. So what brought it all to an end, Annie? Uh, well, sadly, the financial crisis, two, two things, of course. One was that uh, the budgets were, were hugely cut. All this entertaining in the financial services industry came to an end or was vastly cut back, um, as, as was completely appropriate. And then the other thing was that it was absolutely inappropriate that we should be having a fun time and going to events, you know, even if you hadn't been invited, we shouldn't have been writing about them, when people in the industry were actually losing their jobs. And there was a real fear that we could actually have a complete, you know, collapse of the banks and, and collapse of, of our financial institutions. I mean, the idea that we were being frivolous and silly about it was, was very inappropriate. So fun while it lasted, but uh, not to continue. And although I say very sad to see it go, but absolutely uh, sympathetic with the reason to disappear. I think it probably had that shelf life, didn't it? It was appropriate for the year that it was in existence. It made a lot of people laugh. It probably made a lot of people raise their eyebrows as well. But it oh, was absolutely. I mean, the, the raising of eyebrows. I mean, well, first of all, I mean, where I raised my people uh, said, asked me because I was a little bit older than the, I said a little bit, a little bit older than the other two. Well, are they your daughters? Are oh, they your daughters? <laughs> and I think, good heavens, no, we're not related. I wouldn't let any daughter of mine do what we get up to. <laughs> <laughs> my 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 own daughter is rather like rather like Safi in that absolutely fabulous thing. She, uh, I remember her coming into my bedroom one morning and standing under my bed and going tut tut and saying, "Mummy, you know you shouldn't drink tequila." Um, <laughs> <laughs> so having worked in the consumer press, having worked within the trade press. And over a specific period of time, you've seen a lot of change within the um, financial services industry. What's your view as a financial journalist of the marketplace at the moment? Are we in good shape? Oh, hard to say. I mean, I'm not privy to everybody's, you know, every, everybody's sort of reports and accounts. But uh, what I would say is that I think that uh, the, the advice industry particularly has got a long way to go 
Now, um, I see, you know, I'm a, a huge, you know, social media follower. I'm, I'm great on the, you know, forums on, on Twitter. And I, I kind of feel this kind of resentment that, that, that advisors, the advisory business now, they're saying, look, we're all the good guys now. We're following the rules. You know, we've had this immense burden of compliance put on us about things that we can and we can't say. And we're being, you know, stiff for money to pay for compensation and for money advice service and all this. We are the good guys. And why is everybody beating us up about this? Why don't people trust us? There are people out there who are doing a really good job. But I think they don't realize how bad it was, you know, how much consumers really hate them. You know, not just the bankers, but the advisors, you know, the people that sold them those duff pensions, those bonds sold on commission, those structured products. They greatly tainted by, of course, the bank salesmen who who were calling themselves advisors when there were no such thing. Of course. So I feel that, that although I have enormous sympathy for people who are doing the right thing and are just trying to make a, a decent day's wage for a decent job and trying to do the best by their clients, they don't actually realise the animosity that there still is out there and the mistrust from what has gone before that I think could take a generation to shift. And what do we need to do as an industry? Not not just financial advisors. I would include everybody in this question. So financial advisors, financial services providers, whether it's protection, pensions, investments, whatever they do. What do we need to do as an industry to make this sea change in consumer opinion? Because let's face it, if you go onto the internet and type in pretty much any financial services term, you're going to find a lot of negative articles on google you are indeed you are indeed and i, I my benchmark is i mean I, I don't know how representative this is but it's certainly the sort of the vociferous people is you just read those comments on things like uh, the bottom of articles and things like you know the guardian the daily mail those websites you know where they allow you to telegraph you know, where they allow you to comment uh, you see what the public is saying about you you know you read those forums you know you, you read twitter about what the public are saying I and mean, it is not good i mean obviously i think it's getting better i would say you know please press on please do the right thing it it is it is hard i mean it it really is hard i mean i i am sympathetic and i think we've got an enormous now complaint society we've got an entitlement society we've got a compensation society and everybody's sort of but the thing is it it, it came from somewhere it became because people were so ripped off. They just think, you know, I, I want my money back. <laughs> I think one of the ways forward that I'm quite keen on is pushing out more positive messages. And, and we just said there, there are so many negative stories out there on the Internet. If every single advisor, for example, every single advisor who's had a successful critical illness claim or, or, or whatever could start telling the stories of those customers and those clients and how their lives have been changed by that payment. And eventually, and as you say, it might take a generation, but eventually those positive stories might start to balance out the negative ones. And that brings me on to another question that I was going to um, uh, ask you, Annie, and that's about IFAs talking to the media. Um, I think that we need a lot more financial advisors out there being spokespeople for their companies, championing their companies, and talking about financial advice 
in the consumer press and in the trade press. One of the things I did when I was at Bright Grey was to try to almost marry up journalists and IFAs. We, we used to host dinners once a quarter where we would take four advisors and four journalists, try to get them talking and hope that those journalists would then contact those advisors later on to, to do comments in the press and, and articles, etc. One of the things that I found most surprising was there was almost an inbuilt fear with those advisors. Well, I don't know whether I want to come along. What if I say the wrong thing? What if the headline on marketing is so-and-so said this or so-and-so is having an affair with that and of course that isn't a reality but there is a perception there. I don't want to get involved with the media because I might trip up what would you say to advisors who are perhaps thinking about becoming spokespeople would you encourage them to do that um, I would but I would also say different strokes for different folks I think people have very different business models and I, I was actually talking to uh, something in a completely different industry about 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 their PR, and I said, well, do you actually want, you know, we we all want we want to be in the papers, we want to do this, we want to do that. I said, but actually, do you? You know, you're a very local company. Do you really want to be besieged by people who you can't actually meet their needs? You know, that that that's not actually what your business is about. If you if you, for instance, had something about you in the Telegraph, and then you had you know 300 phone calls in response to it and you didn't actually want to do business with those people, that would actually be damaging to your company because you wouldn't be able to meet their expectations. Indeed. So, 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 so that would be the wrong thing to do. The other thing is that people have, I mean, have different means of communicating. I think if you want to do that and you want a higher profile and that would benefit your business, then I would encourage you to go for it. But if you're not, I think just decide what it is that you are actually wanting to do because if you're very happy with with the getting your clients in printed by word of mouth, by referrals or whatever, and you're very local, and that's how you prefer to deal with people, do what you're comfortable with. If you are wondering about how journalists, how why journalists always contact what seems to be, you know, the talking heads, the renter quotes, the whatever, it's actually quite simple. It's that those people always have something to say, and they say it in a timely manner, in a, in a way that the journalists can use it. And, I mean, when I first started uh, writing about personal violence, I thought, oh, I'm fed up with seeing the same old faces in the papers in the time. I'm going to go and try and get some local people. But, of course, you know, they actually haven't got a clue about what a journalist needs. And they, you really don't need to go and meet them for an hour and a half meeting you know, in their office in Northampton on Wednesday, next Wednesday. You actually need sort of two sentences now that you can uh, just put into your article, you know, a, a comment or something. Uh and you, the person needs to have the the, the IFA or whatever it is, they needs to have the confidence that they they can do that. That they're not going to be, you know, kebabbed by somebody with some you know, in terribly intrusive, you know, in, in questioning about about something. It's it's really satisfying that uh, journalist needs. And if you're mistrustful of what a journalist might be, about, then the, the best thing to do is to kind of start a relationship with them. You know, maybe by sending them press releases, getting them to call you back. And start a relationship so that you, there is this, this level of trust. Um, so I think that that's quite a lot of you know it's expectation and trust is, is is what it is what it's about. And so what you're saying there is that if somebody does want to communicate with journalists and to contribute to articles, it really needs to be quick and it needs to be timely. So if I you think so. I mean, it depends. Yes, I mean it, it, obviously different publications that have different needs at different times. They will do in depth. Uh, in-depth interviews sometimes and perfectly clear that's what they're doing but other times it's just a, a reaction uh, for instance you know, the ABI put out a statement on something 
and they just you just want to say, well, go sober, sober associates, says this is a good move going forward and uh, we'll have to see what happens at the end of their review process. And it's not exactly, you know, some great incisive, insightful, incisive thing. It's really just a reactive uh, quote. And you can be quoted doing that because you, you want to be on that list of, of the person to call. And if you're saying, are you never available or you will only meet, uh, meet a journalist in your office and you want the thing to record and you want this, something else, you're just not going to be on that list. So we've talked about uh, advisors talking to the media and we've talked about what advisors need to do to, to raise their profiles and overcome the unfortunately negative image that a lot of consumers have of them. What do product providers need to do, Annie? And I'm talking about protection providers, pensions, investments, etc., because they have a tarnished reputation as well. What do they need to be doing to raise their confidence levels with the consumers? I mean, we've obviously seen in the past that um, volume sales and, and, and increasing market share has been the name of the game, and companies haven't cared how they have done it. And any fines, compensation has been a cost of doing business. I mean, we look at some of the fines um, handed down uh, by the FSA in, in, in recent months. I mean, it's, it's a drop. It maybe some of them go to billions of pounds, but they're still a drop in the bucket to the profits made by those appalling uh, sales practices. So, I think that goes to the top that, that that the companies have to decide what business they are in. I mean, if, if you can't go along with that as a member of that company. You know, you're in, you're in the wrong job. And I would hope really that most people would not want to be doing that, would not want to be selling inappropriate products to, to people or, I mean, just things like, um, upselling and intercompany relationships, you know, where, where people take on a license to sell somebody else's products, you know, worries me because that's clearly not necessarily doing the best by the client. Maybe making it convenient if you get your house insurance from the same building society where you take out your mortgage. I mean, that's, probably very convenient but it's not necessarily the best insurance but that's the way we do business today i mean i don't like it but and then i can't kick against the whole business that's for a regulatory system and for individual companies to decide how what their business model is having been within big corporate myself there's always that huge tension between calling yourself and trying to be customer focused and of course the the, the desire and sometimes the need from a from a company point of view to make profits and and perhaps that tension has always been skewed too much towards the profitability and as opposed to the doing what's right for the consumer and that's probably why we ended up with legislation telling us that we had to treat customers fairly well absolutely it seems a completely absurd idea doesn't it you've got to treat, treat customers fairly you think that was going to just go with the job but it does yes it did appear it had to be had to be spelled out but i think this is the whole we're going back to the whole idea here whether things like financial services are a business you know like you know, selling cars or something or whether it, it is a utility you know like providing you know wholesome water to the you know to, to the community so the tension between those two two roles and i think what the regulator is trying to do or what what consumer activists are trying to see is trying to get a, a an equitable balance between the two but in a way it's not actually possible to do it because if everything if, if, if everybody is speaking completely fairly the companies are making money and if and if the companies are allowed to let lift and make money for their shoulders and the customers around be ripped off so it's a matter of keeping things in balance and I think it's a very hard job and I'm glad that 
I am just the one who has to stand on the outside and is able to criticise it as a journalist and don't actually have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, this is another generational shift, I think. Uh, And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about when you started as a journalist and every story that you wrote was a story about you almost. It's such a shame that with finance interwoven so perfectly with pretty much everything we do in our lives that the finance industry has got such a tarnished re- reputation well i think it has i mean when i say it was all about me i mean it sounds a bit a bit sort of selfish and self-centered but it was just things like i was you know coming into it, things like the demutualization of the building societies you know i yeah. have these accounts you know and, and i have to vote do i want to you know demutualize or, or not um you know the big companies are going bust and was i getting compensation for them or things like the, the great the great changeover to stakeholder pensions. You know, I was being asked to make decisions in my life about these things, and these were these, these were affecting everybody. I thought this is, this is well, this is life, and I think finance a bit like the weather. You might not want to be bothered with it, but you actually have to be because it does affect everybody at all times. You, know, you can't live in a cave and, and 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 not really attend to it. I mean, but nowadays it affects everybody. You know, you have to insure your car. You have to make sure your family is provided for if anything happens to you. You have to negotiate the, the bank borrowing system if you want to borrow money to buy a house. And you probably have to because of, you know, rent is so expensive. And all these things, they all affect you. You have to, you have to know which bank account to choose. It's not just a matter of going along and sticking your money over the counter. There are, there are a million accounts to choose from and you have to be engaged and, and involved. And it's very difficult because people don't want to be. The same as I don't want to be involved in how my car works. I just want to jump into it and drive to the shop. I think people just want their pension to work. They don't want to have to choose, but, but they're going to be made to. Annie, it's been fascinating to talk to you this morning. It's really good to get a journalist onto the Empath podcast because you always bring a completely different perspective to this wonderful world of financial services that we're all striving to improve. We're all striving to make more positive. We're all striving to get much better, more positive stories out there so that we can overcome this public perception that we have. Before we go, Annie, I always like to finish the Empath podcast with a few quick-fire business questions. Are you happy to stay just for a few minutes to answer those? Great stuff. If there was one thing that you could change about the financial services industry, perhaps by waving the magic wand, what would it be? I would make make it compulsory for people to understand compound interest. Maybe it's not about the industry, it's about people. I would want people to understand it because they don't understand, they don't understand how their investments wither if they get poor interest or how their debts grow if they are paying too high. So that would be my thing. You make it, you can't sell anything. You can't, you can't have any financial products unless you can understand that compound interest. And what's the one business model or product or campaign that's caught your attention in the last year? Tell us what you liked about it. The only one that ever got to me was that all whitehead one for Aviva. With the, with, but that's ages ago, the life insurance one. Oh, that was a good that, advert, though, wasn't it? Was, it was, it was like about four years ago. But I mean, Annie, tell us about an app or a gadget that's made a huge difference to your life. Oh, Roger, I, I'm so old-fashioned. I don't have any apps or gadgets. But the thing that changed my life is Twitter. You know, Twitter. Now, all a bit old-fashioned Twitter. I mean, been around for a long time, but... I have met so many people through Twitter. I mean, I really have met them. I mean, I, people I feel I know both by talking on Twitter and then people who I have actually gone and met physically. I remember with Morningstar twice had what they called meetups, you know, and we went along and I actually met people who I had interacted with 
sometimes for quite a long time in, as, a, as a journalist, you know, I've been phoning them up and things. I've never actually met them face to face. So it was quite funny. It was by making it much more human on Twitter that then that encouraged us to all go to this, these parties, you know, speak up thing and, and meet face to face. I have actually made relationships with people who I consider to be quite distant as, and, and unavailable, you know, as a journalist, but executives on the heads of the pension companies. And, but I, Twitter really did change my relationship with uh, financial service companies. So, uh, and people, and uh, please, could I just put in a little ad here that forget your social media marketing and selling through Twitter. It's all about people. That's what Twitter is. It's social. The key is social. And so it's actually meeting the marketing director of a pensions company. It's not about hearing about the latest campaign on Twitter that does it mean. That's a great lesson. Social media is exactly that, social. Yeah. And, fi- and finally, Annie, what's the best book you've ever read? Tell us why you like it so much. Oh, golly, that's too much. It. That's too much because there's so many. But I'm going to say the one that I have just read and I find deeply shocking. Um, it is called The Divide by Matt Taibbi, who's that Rolling Stone journalist uh, who did all the stuff about the vampire squid, um, uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, but he's done a thing, an analysis of, of how our society has fragmented with the haves and the have-nots. The reach is not just through money and access to financial services, access to housing, all that, but it's through to, to the justice system. And I think it's it's actually you know pretty depressing. It's about America, but it, it's it's really about about the West. It applies to the UK as well. Uh, so I would definitely, if, if you haven't read The Divide, you know, go out and read it. Matt Tidy. And before we sign off, Annie. Tell everyone how they can connect with you, probably specifically on Twitter, but also on LinkedIn or any other social media um, that you're participating in. I am on LinkedIn. You can find me. I think you've got Annie Shaw Journals. You can find me on, on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn. Uh, but Twitter, Twitter at Cash Questions. Yes, always talk to me on Twitter. Love it. That's my favourite way because I, I'm always on it. I keep it running in the background or whatever I'm doing. So I'm always having a quick look. Sometimes LinkedIn I don't look at. Annie, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Let me wish you every success in the future, and I hope to catch up with you again soon, probably at another big industry event like the Money Marketing Awards. Yeah, but they won't let me write about it now. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast, also known as the Empath Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath for links to the apps and books and topics we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you would leave a review on iTunes. Simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a comment. If you are a provider, advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model that you want to talk about, do please get in touch. I'd be delighted to have you as a guest on the Empath Podcast. And before we go, just to remind you that nothing that my guests and I talked about on the show is intended to be financial advice of any kind. It's just our thoughts and opinions. Okay? Okay.